Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week, we addressed the, the powerful truth that when Christ sets you free, you are truly free. You are free indeed. And I like how one pastor illustrates how easily we can turn away or perhaps even lose that freedom. Coal miners know that dangerous gases can gather silently and secretly in tunnels. And carbon monoxide eventually strangles them, kills them. Methane explodes. In fact, a methane explosion took place in 2006 in a mine in West Virginia, and over 12 miners were killed. And this has happened throughout the world, throughout history, when it comes to coal mining. So in the very early days of coal mining, there came this idea of having really a, a low-tech solution. They brought as you know the expression, a canary into the mine. And the reason why a canary is a canary's metabolism is so sensitive to air quality. As long as these birds sang and chirped, everything was okay. They knew the air was safe. They could keep on mining. But if gas levels rose, the canaries, they began to stop singing. They wobbled, <laughs> slowly tumbled over, and died. And eventually... It was clearly the sign that life was in danger. I think of Christian joy and freedom as very much like this singing yellow bird. It's a reminder of the joy that we have, the freedom that we have in Christ. But once we slowly start experiencing a loss of that joy and a constricting of that freedom, then just like that canary, slowly but surely, we fade away. Our hearts grow hard. And we can no longer sing about the glories of Christ and about what he has done for us. We have forgotten the gospel. And I think that's exactly what Paul is trying to tell us here in verses 2 to 6. As he so often does in Galatians, he's warning us. He's telling us that we have to be mindful. There is so much in our world, in our own hearts, and in the enemy and his schemes to try to keep us from this joy and freedom that we have in Christ, in the gospel. And so he does this in verses 2 to 6 by showing us a contrast. We'll actually be covering the second part of this next week as well. But first, he does this by showing us the contrast of the valuelessness of Christ and then secondly, the infinite value of Christ. So we'll look at that contrast today and next week. The valueness, valuelessness of Christ, I know, is a strange statement for us as Christians because we don't think of Jesus as valueless. 
Do we ever consider that perhaps, though, that the way we act or think actually makes Jesus valueless? When Paul says this, we do so make him valueless in a couple of ways. And we want to make sure we don't do these things. We don't think these things because to do so is to defame Christ and his gospel. And so what are these two things that makes Christ valueless in our lives? First is that there is no ultimate distinction in life before Christ and after Christ. If we look at verse 2, Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. The word that we have here in the ESV, advantage, I like the way rather that the NIV translates the same word. The word is value, and it actually does a better job of translating the original language, the original Greek. And the reason is because the word value sort of expresses this idea of intrinsic worth, that there is value in the object itself, as well as those who look upon that object and consider that object. So, for instance, Paul's telling us that we have a choice. We can either choose circumcision or choose Christ, who is intrinsically valuable on his own. Whereas circumcision is just a tradition or a ritual that actually has no intrinsic value at all. It's not inherent in the act. Remember, Paul isn't just talking about physical circumcision. It's more about what circumcision signified, what it meant, what it meant for the Jew. What circumcision meant for the Jew was that it meant they were God's people. It meant that they were inheritors of God's covenant blessings, of his promises. It meant that they were, by their obedience of the law, they expressed faithfulness to God. It basically represented security. It represents their national pride. It represents their heritage, their morality, their ethics, their tradition. So if you think about all of those things and consider yourself and how we view what is most valuable to us, perhaps we think that something external outside of Christ also, ethnic heritage. Is it academics, your skill set, your intellect, whom you marry, who your family is, what they look like? So the parallel Again, and we've talked and touched on this much, is that circumcision on its own, we, we are so distant from that. We don't think of circumcision in our lives in that way. But again, circumcision is but a signification of something much different, more valuable, more lasting. So Paul's saying if we try to hold on to the circumcision, because if in this sense we're saying something we do pleases God, then the Galatians, they would be basically be trying to live as a Christian the same way they lived before they became a Christian. Let me explain it this way. Tim Keller explains how this is so. He says, under circumcision, the Galatians will experience once again the anxiety, guilt, and burden life they knew before as pagans. They will never be sure that they are being good enough. Their lives will be as fear-based and proud and guilt-ridden as they were before. In fact, probably more so. 
They will fall into the touchiness, insecurity, pride, discouragement, and weariness of people who are never sure that they have worth. That is righteousness. Think of it this way. When we came to Christ, we were freed from all those things that makes us believe that something we do is of value and worth to us. And once we are in Christ, we are freed from that forever. That's the promise. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Before Christ, we lived as though we were completely dependent on ourselves to prove our worth. And so often, for many of us, we describe that life as the roller coaster ride of the Christian life. And perhaps you've used that metaphor before. Especially when you're younger as a believer, you start describing your life as a roller coaster. And think of, so I, I sort of want to take that metaphor and actually explore it a little bit. If you've ever gone on a roller coaster, you know what it's like. Remember how it always starts off? There's a slow, steady climb up to the very pinnacle, to the peak. And with that comes all this anticipation, fear. I mean, it's intended to give you that sense. And as you're going up, you, you, I, I think of all of the efforts of our lives that we work towards. For many of you, it's been your education, that whole process. And for those of you who have education is in your rearview mirror, you remember, and perhaps for some of you, you're in that right now, and it's a slow, steady process. It's hard. It's hard work, and it takes testing and all sorts of different uh, points of climax and being able to really overcome a lot of difficulties and discipline and all those hard things. It's a slow ride up. But once, as we're in this graduation season, once graduation comes from high school, from college, from graduate school, there's that sense of exhilarating relief. The downhill, everything is good. You know, we're finally made it. We're done. And so you think, I'm going to soar for the rest of our lives. I mean, that's just academics. Maybe it's marriage. You know, you're looking for someone to spend the rest of your life with. You find that person, you're planning for a wedding, and then the wedding day comes, and then after that, everything's going to be wonderful. I think we, you, you get the point. You can put that sort of metaphor into every aspect of our lives. And so much of it is about I, me. I work hard. I found this person. I took care of the wedding plans. I worked hard to get to this interview, to get this job, to be where I want to be, to, to get to that goal. But what happens once you achieve it? We all know it's not just a steady downhill. It's twists and turns and drops and fades and falls. And, and suddenly the question marks start coming around. Did I marry the right person? First conflict at work happens where perhaps people don't really appreciate what you do. And suddenly you start thinking, don't I need a new job? You fail your first test. You graduate from high school and you're, you're top of your class. You go to college and it is super hard. And now you're just like everybody else. And you, you get C's and D's and suddenly it's so hard. And did I make it? Am I going to fail? Am I going to flunk? The problem is that where our dependence is constantly on our own strength all the time. It's the temptation of our world and our lives. And at one point, we feel good about who we are, what we have accomplished, what we've done. 
but circumstances come, externalities that come in our lives and they swamp over us and suddenly we start doubting what's wrong with me. Or maybe we start feeling sorry for ourselves. Why is everything against me? Or we want to fit in and we fit in and then another grouping comes along. We don't fit into that group and we feel rejected. You see the ebbs and flow of our joy and freedom throughout our lives. It just keeps on happening. And in the midst of that, weariness starts setting in. Dryness, joylessness. Because it is so hard in our world when we're trying to prove our worth and our righteousness and our value by our circumstances. And that's pretty much ongoing throughout our lives. You can't really be free that way. And Paul's saying, if you're trying to uphold your faith, your righteousness by anything other than the gospel of Christ, by faith alone, through grace alone, then more of value, but Christ is of no value. That there's nothing in between. You can't have half of yourself and half of Christ. You're either going to see Christ as all valuable or you are all valuable. So either you make the cross the most significant, all-encompassing part of who you are and defines who you are, or you make yourself all-significant. And But you can't have both. And so we shouldn't be surprised by this overwhelming sense of weariness and joylessness when within our own power and our own strength, we gain worth and value of it. And this is an ongoing struggle of all of us all the time, every day we live, every moment. And it happens over and over again. And it can be overwhelming, especially if we try to do it on our own. You know, I'm going to give a couple of building illustrations because for me, this is like number one on my value list, you might say. I find that the more I try to fix the building and all of its challenges, to try to get it done, the more I see my own sinfulness. It just happens. The goal is good. Every week, we've been talking for a year, over two years, talking about the goal. The goal is, I can't wait for all of us to meet together and to worship the Lord together, to be his church, to sing, to hear your voices, to actually speak and to actually see all of your faces. It's not supposed to be this. You're not supposed to be there sitting there like that. We're supposed to be together. And so the goal is good. The problem is that it's so easy to make me the center of getting to that goal. And so I know that because I can be easily irritated when I'm talking to contractors or when I'm talking to where we're all trying to get to inspectors and the city and all these things. And it's, I, I sense the, both the irritation and the worry. The worry comes because when I think about whether it's true or not, when I think about the success of this building, it's easy to think that I'm ultimately responsible. So if you see failure, it comes on me. And I don't want to look like a failure. I want to look successful. And the temptation is to think, one, the way to achieve that success is to 
do everything I possibly can within my own power to make it happen, to be involved, to work hard, harder than everybody else, to make sure that I'm on the top of every email, of every text. If something needs to be done, I fix it. I do it. And the temptation is because otherwise people are going to look at the failure and say, that's Sam's fault. And when they look at that, then they say, then that comes on my heart. And I start thinking, maybe I'm not who I think I should be. That's the temptation. And I tell you, it is an every moment, every day temptation. It's always there. The enemy's always prompting and saying, you see that? You promised it would be done on March of last year, whatever a day it was. And I've kept on, I don't know if you noticed, but I don't give a date anymore. I want to. There's this date I have in mind, but I'm, I'm holding it back uh, because of all these temptations. So what comes with that? Anger, fear of failure, anxiety, sleeplessness, high bludgeon. See, the more I am worried about what you think of me and my own, the more it causes me then to work harder, not for the glory of God, but for the glory of Sam. And that then leads to forgetting about the freedom that I have in Christ. Do you see how the choice is? I can't choose to try to do both. Jesus doesn't allow it. It's one of the reasons why we started morning prayer again, because my temptation is always to think I got to work harder versus I have to submit myself to the Lord more in prayer, depend on him, trust him. So I give you that example because every day for me is a fight of atheism, practical atheism, to say I believe in Jesus, trust in the gospel, but then live as someone who doesn't actually? Or am I going to actually do it? Now, again, I give you that because I just want you to see that I'm prone to this and it's ongoing all the time. And if you're honest with yourself, you are prone to it as well. So am I really going to see myself as a child of God, an heir to the throne, that Christ is my brother through his blood shed for me? Or am I going to live as though Christ has no value at all? The gospel is meaningless. And actually everything is but external, uh, a circumstance. I'm actually living as though I lived before I knew Christ even though I say I believe in him. And that doesn't mean always I do believe in Christ, but there are moments where that happens practically. So Paul's warning us of that, saying don't live as though Christ has no value. Don't live as though before you knew Christ. The second way we make Christ valueless is we add to Christ's work of salvation. Verses three and four show us this. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You see, what good is, is it saying I'm saved by grace, I believe in the gospel, I trust in him, but then I add to my salvation by my good works, by my faithfulness, by the fact that I do good things. James describes such a person this way in James chapter 1, verses 23 to 24. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. You see, I can talk about grace, but as verse 4, grace, how does that happen? Because I add to what Christ has done. I actually think that it can't be so easy. And I think that's actually one way we add to salvation is we minimize grace. We think of grace as it's too easy. I have to do more. It can't be just the cross. It has to be about my prayers. It has to be about going on missions. It has to be about evangelizing. We can't really believe that what Jesus did at that cross fully purchased and paid for our freedom. And I find that the ones who struggle with grace deeply, who can't imagine God being that merciful and gracious, are the ones who really fall from grace, who don't get it. Again, last week we talked much about the fact that if you understand grace, you will live out your life in faith. But it flows from that grace. It's always a heart of joy and thankfulness. The mark of a Christian truly is joy. And joy comes in sorrows. It comes in grieving times. It comes when difficult circumstances arise. There's a peace that exhibits and exudes joy. And joy isn't always about a smile per se, but it is inherently about that peace that we have with God and with others. And so there has to be this sort of propulsion that flows out of grace into joy, joyfulness. I like how Martin Luther described it. He noted that when he was in the monastery, he witnessed so many men who were so struck by their conscience of their sin, but had not truly taken hold of the gospel. They didn't get it. And you know what? Those people, these men who were in this monastery who were so struck by their sin but didn't get the gospel of grace, you know what? They were the most fervent in prayer. They fasted the most. They punished their bodies. They would literally beat their bodies as a way of showing their utter physical, spiritual brokenness, all to obtain peace of conscience. But listen to the result. This is what he says. The more they travailed, the more they were stricken down with fear. And especially when the hour of death approached, they were so fearful that I've seen many murderers and other malefactors condemned to death, dying more courageously than they that did who had lived very holily. That is to say that when you don't have the gospel, but you have the conscience, the law coming down on you and showing you your guilt of sin, and you think that the way to overcome the law is by the law, meaning if I pray harder, if I study God's word harder, if I beat myself up harder, then, and if I fast and maybe separate myself from the world, therefore everything will be, I, I will experience God's joy over me. It doesn't happen. It's exactly the opposite. That's why there are ministries and churches, for example, that will say we believe in grace, we believe in the gospel. But if you look at the way that they structure themselves 
the way that perhaps they decide, okay, everybody has to attend this prayer meeting. And if you don't, you're not faithful. You're not godly. It has to be, you have to pray for four hours. You have to fast 40 days. You have to only marry this type of person. And the more constricting they are, the more there might be zeal, passion sometimes. Some of the most zealous evangelists come from such churches. But also what flows out of that is fear and guilt. And there's never a sense of assurance and joy. It's always built out of fear, anxiety, and strict discipline. See, you get results from the law, but what you don't get is a heart change. You don't get joy. And so Paul's saying, every man who accepts circumcision, every person who goes by the law, who thinks that you can by your effort change your life, is ultimately severed from Christ. What we add to the gospel, and again, it could be Jesus and evangelism, Jesus and church in the Bible reading, Jesus and fasting and prayer, all of these things. It could be Jesus and good Christian parenting. I do think that is a very tempting one. It's to conflate the idea that godliness in parenting equals the gospel. It doesn't. And let us be very, very careful about merging those two. Or perhaps Jesus and standing up for justice. And that's a, a, a phrase that's really being hotly contested in many of our churches today is the idea that having a, a sense of racial justice, justice for the poor, that that is equal to the gospel. That is the gospel. No, that's a danger. As well as even sexual purity, which was very big in a certain time period within the evangelical church, especially in the 80s and 90s, where that, and it's left a real battlefield of mortally, sometimes mortally wounded people who, whose sexual purity is equated to the gospel. It's not. Faithfulness to your spouse, good grades in school, marrying the right person, missions to unreached peoples. You see, if we get angry while we're doing all of these things or expecting these things on other people, what happens is that once trials come in, and they will, they always do, suddenly we start examining God, putting him, as C.S. Lewis described, putting him into the dock. We become the prosecutor against God as the witness, as the defense, and saying, God, you know, I married the right person that you wanted me to marry. I was sexually pure. I was a godly parent. I stood up for justice. I was a missionary. I was a pastor. I did all these things. Why is this loved one struggling with cancer? You are not loving. You are not faithful. You are not good. That heart flows from the heart that does not understand grace at all. It instead flows from someone who says, grace is not in operation. It's only only by what you do that is right or good. We, we have to be mindful of how easily we can turn towards that direction. And fear drives that so much. 
It is possible to fall away from grace without losing it completely. And some of you truly know the grace of all that Jesus has done for you. But like me, you and I, we forget so easily. Have you forgotten that nothing you do or nothing you fail to do can separate you from the love of God? Nothing. Are you trying to add to what Jesus has done for you? That it's, it has to be more than this. That it's grace, it's great, but I know God wants me to be fill in the blank for God to accept me, to love me. The person of grace knows that Christ is infinitely valuable. And out of that value, that infinite value and worth, you fight fear. You act, you mobilize, you sacrifice, you give, you discipline yourself. You risk, you die. Because you know that Jesus' words are so true. In Matthew 16, 25, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We're going to look at this first infinite value of knowing Jesus today. And the second one we'll address next week. It's really going to be the basis of what next week is all about. So first is that this first value is that we know that our righteousness rests secure forever. And we see this in verse five, for through the spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, I am eagerly awaiting the opening of our building and our regathering. Since March of 2020, we last met together. That's a long time. And there is a lot of anticipation within me for that time to come. But if I were to say to you, I eagerly await for the hope of our opening, you might think, wait a second, is something wrong? And here's why, because when you hear that phrase, eagerly await the hope of an opening, it sounds like it might happen or it might not happen. And that's exactly how we might interpret verse five, is that we say, for through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the, maybe this will happen, I hope that there's righteousness for me, but maybe there might not be righteousness for me. And what Paul is saying is not this sort of unassured, ambiguous hope, but rather for Paul, it really is so clear because this word in the Greek really has this idea of it's going to happen. It's just going to happen in the future. There will come a time, but it will happen. We can be confident. We can be assured of this hope. And so Paul's saying we can be assured because of the price that has been paid through the infinite cost of Jesus' blood shed for us and the Holy Spirit, whom he calls as the one who guarantees this, that this hope is a reality. It's not wishful thinking. Don't count your chickens before they're hatched hope. It's this is reality. And our hope rests firmly on the perfect righteousness of Christ. It's why we need to consider that nothing should be, will be added to the gospel. You are sons and daughters. You are heirs. You are loved. You are free. And you do not need to spend your whole life trying to prove your worth as a Christian 
as a person, as a peer, a coworker, a family member, the more you spend trying to prove yourself to either God or others, the more miserable you will be. There is a direct correlation to that. The less you do that, the more you find your hope resting in Christ alone, the more free you are to others. Again and again and again, because it is an ongoing battle of our hearts. But you are loved and worthy because of the infinite value of Christ and his righteousness that is yours at the cross. And when you believed in him, the Holy Spirit implants that, imputes that into your life so that you are forever changed. That's not a, I hope righteousness. That's a, this is true reality. And one day you'll experience it perfectly. And when that day, when we see the Lord face to face, we will be made anew, changed, alive forever. There's not an ounce of personal effort that will save you. And you know how you're going to know this most? The day of your death. On your deathbed, if you should have the opportunity not to die suddenly, but even to prepare your last breaths, let me ask you something. Will you be able to do anything at that point to gain your own righteousness? That point where you are literally all you have are the last breaths of your life. Will there be anything you can do to make you worthy enough before God or other people? Absolutely not. On the last moment of your life, when you take that last breath, all you have is to be able to say these words that I, I love what Augustus Toplady says in uh, Rock of Ages. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And that's all you'll have at the end of your days. So if this is what we have at the end of our days, may we live as though this moment is the end of our days. Because when you live this way, you are free. Free from the opinions of others, free to battle sin, free to take risks, to drive away fear, to fight the accusations of the enemy, to live with freedom and joy, to risk love, to be vulnerable, to be hurt. All of these things flow out of this idea of deathbed theology. Not the labor of my hands. Thou must save, thou alone. And when we have that, we have infinite value in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come to acknowledge the mercy of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the bloodshed, we have this hope that is not wishful thinking hope, but an assured, confident hope. That righteousness that has been purchased by Jesus is ours. So our value, Lord, may we never be tricked and deceived in ourselves by our own sinfulness, as well as the enemy's schemes, to think that something of what we do or how people view us is where our worth or value comes from. But instead, may it be in the inestimable, perfect, infinite value of Christ that 
we who are being conformed to the image of your son, may that be what defines who we are. And out of that flows the joy and delight to live this life in faith in you forever. So we thank you for Christ, your only begotten son, who has set us free from the law of sin and death. In Jesus' name we pray.